Thank you. Please take your Bibles and turn to uh, Mark chapter 12. Did you have a good week? How's the weekend going? Anybody catch fish yet? Thank you for being here uh, on this beautiful morning. I was thinking I'd probably see some sunburn out there uh, from yesterday. Uh, It's been a good week. It's been a good week. Yesterday we spent all day at camp and got really excited as people showed up and we got the campgrounds ready for a season of camp ministry. And uh, it was exciting just to be there and think that we get back to Bible camp after a summer off. And everybody was excited and looking forward to what God has in mind. And uh, it was an exciting week. Uh, Just want to report so that you can praise God because I know you pray for the different ministries of our church. Um, We got a taste of camp on Wednesday night when eight or nine of our students came forward publicly and uh, made commitments that they were going to be all in with Jesus. They were no longer going to accept mediocrity in their Christian lives. And it just reminded me of camp and uh, so excited And now we get to look at Jesus again as we uh, continue our study in the book of Mark. Uh, As I said, chapter 12 is where we are today. Whenever you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, obviously you find so many things about him that are impressive. Uh, In fact, amazing And maybe you've noticed, you'll see it again in the text today, that that was the response of a lot of people at that time to Jesus. They were amazed, the scripture says. There were so many things about Jesus that were just tremendously impressive. He was no ordinary man. Sounds like a good theme for a series, doesn't it? He was no ordinary man. So impressive, so amazing. And one of the things that I've learned about Jesus that has always been impressive to me is what I would call his wisdom and his wit. His wisdom and his wit. Now, I should define wit for you, all right, to make sure you know what I mean by wit. This is what wit is. It's the ability to perceive quickly and express clever, striking and sometimes amusing responses. And that was Jesus. He really was. He had wisdom, of course. So everything was in the context of his wisdom, tremendous wisdom. But he also had wit. He had this ability to perceive quickly and then express clever, striking, and sometimes amusing responses to people. And one of the things that we have seen in the book of Mark is that a group of people that Jesus had many interactions with were the Jewish religious leaders. And we've seen that ever since chapter 3, actually, and it keeps happening. And uh, yet when we see those interactions with the religious leaders, the wisdom and wit of Jesus is just flowing. It it just impresses me so much how he relates to those men. Um, Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at 
his final interactions with some of the religious leaders until they're together again in a hurried middle-of-the-night trial. Uh, This will be the last time he interacts with those men until after his arrest and he is before these same men in this unlawful trial that leads to his death. So this is a pretty important section just for that reason. It's the last time he interacts with these men before the trial. So let's uh, pray and then look at it. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that he has revealed to us in Scripture. Thank you that there's so much truth about him revealed to us and all these different qualities and all these different things that impress us and amaze us. And today, Lord, help us to really see this one quality and uh, may it magnify Jesus even more in our eyes and in our minds. And Lord, also uh, show us how maybe we can apply something we see today. That's our request. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Matthew, or Mark, chapter 12. And uh, you'll notice on your study sheet that uh, the way that this works out is that we have a series of questions. Uh, We're going to see the religious leaders asking Jesus three questions. And then we're going to see Jesus kind of turning the tables and he will ask them a question. And then that'll be it for interaction between them. So let's start in verse 13. And we are going to look at a question, get this, about taxes. And I was thinking this morning, I mean, this is, this is a little, well, no, it's not a little thing because it's providence. It can't be a little thing. But I was thinking, back in December when I put all this together and on this Sunday, We were going to look at this passage, and the first question Jesus has asked is about taxes. I did not know that in 2021, the deadline for taxes would be extended to when? Tomorrow. It's usually April 15th, right? It's tomorrow this year. I mean, I don't know if that's got great spiritual significance, but it just reminds me of this providence thing as as these studies are are planned ahead of time. So anyway, um, starting in verse 13, let me read through 17. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this or whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. 
Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So who is asking the question? It is Pharisees and Herodians. We're pretty familiar with the Pharisees. The Herodians were actually a Jewish political group. And just from their name, uh, you get an idea of what they were all about. But the Herodians supported King Herod. They supported the Romans. All right. And so typically, you wouldn't see the Pharisees and the Herodians on the same side. Mostly they would disagree on things. But they are on the same side when it comes to Jesus and their discomfort with him and their opposition to him. And so it's some Pharisees and some Herodians that come together and they're going to ask Jesus a question. You'll notice that it says later they sent some Pharisees and Herodians. So these guys were sent to Jesus with this question. Who sent them? Well, if you go all the way back to 1127, and this takes us back to last week, we have Jesus in the temple, this is during Passover week, talking to chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. And that continues. Jesus tells this uh very confrontive parable, you remember, last week. And at the end of that, verse 12 of chapter 12, it says they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Uh, they were the villains in his story, and they knew that. And so they started thinking of ways that they could go about arresting him, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And then verse 13 says, later they sent some Pharisees and Herodians. So it's these teachers of the law, um, it's these chief priests who are upset with Jesus. They want to arrest him. They're looking for ways to do it. And so they send some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to ask a question. Why are they going to ask this question? We're told. We know their motive. It says, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They weren't going to ask a question because they wanted an answer. They wanted to learn. Uh, it wasn't really a serious question. Their motive was to catch Jesus, trap him in his words. In other words, I think what it, it means is they're looking for ways to arrest Jesus. Verse 12. And here's a way they think maybe they can do it. They're going to have these Pharisees and Herodians ask him a question that is meant to trap him and to get him in trouble and maybe lead to him being arrested. So what is the question that they ask? Well, the question is actually a political question. And the question is, end of verse 14 and into 15, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay 
or shouldn't we? That was a yes or no question, right? It's a yes or no question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? Very black and white question. Pay the taxes or not? Yes or no? But it was a hot button issue in that day. Like it always has been, right? Paying taxes. And so they bring up this controversial political question to Jesus. And they want a yes or a no. Why? Because no matter which answer he gives, there is the possibility that he could get into enough trouble that they could work out some kind of arrest. Okay? Because if he says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, well, the Herodians are right there. They're among this group. And they support Caesar. And so they would like the answer, but then the Pharisees and any Jews listening would not like that answer. If he said, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar's a pagan. The Roman Empire is evil. You don't have to pay your taxes. You're God's people. Then the Herodians would be upset because they support Rome. And who would they tell right away? The Romans. And Jesus would be in trouble. So the religious leaders think they have found something here to, to trap Jesus. It's a political yes or no question. How did Jesus respond? Well, he says, bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. Denarius was a coin. This isn't a denarius. This is a dollar. But uh, he asks if somebody has a denarius. Somebody must have had one in their pocket. Okay? So they produce that. And, and so he, he shows it. And he says, okay, whose image is on that coin? And... They probably didn't even have to look at it. They knew, and they said Caesar's. On one side, it had an image of Caesar. The other side, it had some writing concerning the Roman Empire. So he, he gives them that visual. And then he, he answers their question. And the answer is in verse 17. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know what he's saying? Pay your taxes. Caesar's image is on that coin. Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? It's really saying pay your taxes. But then, notice, he adds something that they didn't even ask about. And I suggest to you, it's the most important part of the answer. And it's the question religious leaders should have been asking. 
Because he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You see, there was a more important question than the one they were asking. The important question was, are you giving God what belongs to him? They asked a political question. He pointed to a spiritual question. Give Caesar his taxes. But more importantly, give God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Your trust, your love, your service, your honor, your worship. Your family, your life. I mean, you could go on. Give to God what is God's. That is the most important issue. I love his wisdom. I love his wit. How he can so quickly perceive what's going on and come up with this response that is so right on. You know? The real issue that they weren't even thinking about was, what do you give to God? So before we go to the next question, if you want an application, let me just toss this question out and you can think about it. In the last year, if you were to put them side by side, questions you have asked, okay, questions you have asked over here, Political questions. Over here, spiritual questions. Responsibility to Caesar. Responsibility to God. What would your list look like from the last year? The religious leaders wanted to trap Jesus. They thought they could get him with a political question. He saw through it. He saw through their motivation. He quickly answers their political question. Pay your taxes. But then he gets to the real issue that they didn't even ask about. Give to God what belongs to God. That's the important thing. Second question has to do with resurrection. So we move from taxes to resurrection, starting in verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, you've got to really follow me here when I read, because this is going to show how ridiculous their question is. Right? Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures? Or the power of God? 
When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So who is asking the question here? Well, we're told it's Sadducees. It's another group of religious leaders. The Sadducees, as we're told here, did not believe in a resurrection. They believed that death was the end. They did not believe that there was a time when the dead would rise again, that there was life after death. Um, They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a lot of supernatural stuff. They were the more elite group of religious leaders, tended to be the more wealthy ones, tended to be the ones that um, um, stayed away from the supernatural stuff. But here specifically, resurrection. They didn't believe in that. So they come to Jesus and uh, they ask a question. What's the question? Well, basically, the question has to do with after resurrection, verse 23, um, will there be marriage, basically? They, they put together this ridiculous scenario, which proves this isn't a, a serious question, isn't something they really want to know. They're trying to learn something here. It, it's so ridiculous in the way it's set up and presented. Um, that you really understand uh, their motives here. I think what they're doing is they're mocking the resurrection belief. I think that's what they're doing. I think their ridiculous situation that they set up there with this woman is their way of communicating they think resurrection is a ridiculous thing. And so it's about this woman, and they're right about the Old Testament teaching. You know, if, if, if a woman's husband died before they had a child, um, a brother of that man was to marry her so that there could be children from that line. So that was true. But they go on with this thing where she ends up marrying seven of the brothers, and every one of them dies without there being a child. And then the question is, okay, Jesus, if there's a resurrection, and here you got in the resurrection this woman, and there are seven men she was married to. Which one's going to be her husband in that afterlife you people talk about? Got him, right? Got him. Well, his answer is, again, wisdom and wit. Um, He says, verse 24, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? I mean, he's talking to religious leaders here. And he's saying, you know, you're in error. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Wow, that's three things in a row that he's saying to these religious leaders. He very quickly 
answers their question. Notice that? And my wife has to really, has had to really work through this one, right? But Jesus says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, first of all, Jesus isn't saying, you know, in the resurrection, you're all going to be angels. He says, in this one area of marriage, be like the angels. There will be no marrying or given, being given in marriage. Um, in eternity, in heaven, after resurrection, uh, the whole concept of marriage apparently isn't going to be there. Okay? There's going to be relationships that are so much better, if you can believe that. Um, but he answers very quickly. Come on, guys. You know, after the resurrection, there'll be no marrying or given, giving in marriage. Um, uh, that won't be something that goes on. All right. But notice what he does in verse 26. He says, now about the dead rising. What's he doing? He's bringing them back to the real issue. He's bringing them back to the main issue. And it's resurrection. They've created this ridiculous scenario and question to mock the resurrection belief. And so Jesus isn't going to camp on that. He's not going to spend a lot of time on that. Gives a quick answer, and then he says, now about the dead rising, this is the issue, about the resurrection that you don't believe in, these Sadducees. He takes them back to the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the book of Exodus, which they would be very familiar with. Brings them back to the burning bush. Remember that? And Moses. And something that God said to Moses at that time. And so he quotes from Exodus, which these men should know. And what God said to Moses was, I am, notice, not I was. Because Moses is having his burning bush thing long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. But to Moses, God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said to Moses, I am, as though they are still alive, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, based on that, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Jesus indicates that that statement by God to Moses pointed to resurrection, life after death. And God was saying to Moses, Abraham isn't gone forever. Isaac didn't end existence with his death. Jacob is not gone. I am their God, present, not past. And Jesus basically is saying, you guys need to study your scriptures a little better. And notice his last words. You are badly mistaken. 
not believing in a resurrection. You should know better. You should know the power of God that he can raise people from the dead. What were the, what were the Sadducees doing here? They were doing what happens a lot today. People ask ridiculous questions. And their questions are only meant to stump you. They're they're meant to mock you. They're meant to get into an argument. Now you say, "Wait wait a minute now. We Christians always tell people, hey, there are no stupid questions. Right? Don't we ask that? Don't we say that? And we're trying to get people to participate in a study, and we say, don't worry, there are no stupid questions. Where would we get that? We just want people to feel better, right? And, and, And we should be saying, come on, any question is fine. Go ahead and ask. But, hey, there are ridiculous questions. And you've been asked some, right? You've been asked questions that are very defiant in nature. That in motive have nothing to do with the person really wanting to know and learn. They just want to mock. They just want to create this question that really has no answer. It's, and they don't want an answer. They just want to put you on the spot. They just want to stir up an argument. And I think that's what these guys were doing. I mean, it looks pretty clear that's what they were doing. They were ridiculing a belief by asking a ridiculous question. And Jesus, again, in his wisdom and in his wit, is able to quickly perceive how to respond appropriately. And he doesn't camp on the specific question. He knows what's behind it. And he says, now concerning the resurrection, this is the real issue, guys. Third question. The third question that Jesus has asked is about commandments. Starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So who asked this third question? Uh, it's just one person. The first two, it was groups. Here's just one person. It's a teacher of the law who comes. He's hearing the debate that's going on about resurrection. And he, he's impressed with Jesus' response, the wisdom and the wit of Jesus. And so he has a question, this teacher of the law. What's the question? He says, of all the commandments, what's the most important one, Jesus? And Jesus responds. And you know this answer. He says, the most important, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with your all. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the most important commandment, that you love God. And then he gives them a second. He says, and the second greatest is love others. Love your neighbor. They're the two top commandments. And the teacher of the law commends Jesus. I mean, he is really different from these other religious leaders. He commends Jesus and says, that's a good answer. And basically, he's saying, I agree. I agree that is the most important commandment. Love God with your all. And that the second is love others. And then he makes a statement that would be huge for this teacher of the law. He says those two commandments, following them, are even more important than sacrifices and offerings. Do you catch how big of a statement that is for one of these Jewish religious leaders who were all about ritual, ceremony, tradition? And he says, Jesus, you're right. Loving God and loving people are more important than the rituals and the ceremonies and the traditions. Wow. And Jesus compliments him. And notice what he says in his compliment. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now be careful there. He does not say to the man, you are in the kingdom of God. By believing that loving God and loving others is more important than the sacrifices and offerings and rituals, that doesn't put you in the kingdom of God. But he does say to the man, you're not far. He's not in. But he's close. And that's how Jesus ends it. But what would you be wondering at that point, after that statement? You aren't far from the kingdom. I'd be wondering, what's the missing piece? I'm not far, but what, what's next? What gets me in? Do we know? Do we know? Sure we know. 
Jesus' message when he was here was repent and believe the good news. Believe in me and follow me. All this religious leader had left was to recognize who Jesus was. Repent. Believe in Jesus and follow him. But he was close with his answer. But he wasn't in. And friends, there are a lot of people, even today, who aren't far from the kingdom because they would say it's important to love God. They would say it's important to love people, to love your neighbor. But they have never repented of their sins. They have never committed their lives to Jesus Christ for salvation. Loving God and loving people isn't the way. Jesus is the way. But this guy was close. He was close. Our passage ends with one more question. And this time it's a question about the son of David, that phrase. And it starts in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So the last question is asked by Jesus. And he says, why is it that these religious leaders teach that the Messiah is the son of David? That was a common phrase, son of David. Um, coming Messiah Christ, coming king would be the son of David. But what had happened is the religious leaders had begun to present the Christ, the coming Messiah, as more of a human king from the royal line of David. And, and, and Jesus is just asking, why do they do that? Why do they think that he will be just the son of David, another king, you know, humanly speaking? Then he quotes something David said in a psalm. And David said, the Lord said to my Lord, and if you go back there, David is referring to this coming Messiah. Okay? And so, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, etc. And Jesus points out that David himself called that coming one my Lord, not my son. Can you kind of follow that? David himself called the coming Messiah, the coming king, my Lord not my son. And I think what 
he's trying to get across is that these teachers, these religious teachers, have moved away from the whole deity of the Messiah and the Christ and humanized him as simply a great king in the line of David that would come. He came in the line of David, humanly. But Jesus was not going to be just an ordinary human king. They had started to make him that. And he uses David's own words to bring that up. And then he ends with a warning. He says to the people who have probably heard these interactions with these leaders, and he says, watch out for these guys. Watch out for these religious leaders you have. And, and he just gets right to the point. He says, you know, they love to just walk around in these flowing robes. Huh? They've they got to be dressed just right. All the pomp, you know. Um, they love to be greeted in the marketplace. They want to be important. They want you to greet them. They make sure they have the most important seats in the synagogue. You know. They get the benches. Everybody else gets the floor. They want the places of honor at the banquets. They want the best seat in the house because they're so important. For show, they put on this performance with their prayers so everybody can hear how spiritual they are. But, in the midst of all that, he says, they devour widows' houses. They're greedy. They take advantage of people, even widows. It's about financial gain. You can see why this would end any further interaction with the religious leaders until they have him on trial. This is the end of any interaction until that night, a few days later. But the wisdom and the wit of Jesus, that's, that's mainly what I want you to see this morning. As, as he is interacting with these men and he's being challenged and he's uh, being put on the spot and he's being egged on and all of this, the wisdom and the wit with which he responds is so impressive. He's no ordinary man. Jesus, amazing. So, um, let me wrap it up this way. Just maybe, um, maybe a comment about Asking questions and a comment about responding to questions. Ask questions. Okay? It's a good thing. Ask questions. But make sure why you're asking the questions has the right motive. You want to know. You want to learn. And by that, you want to grow. Ask questions. But please, don't get caught up in questioning that's nothing but challenge. 
Nothing but defiance. Nothing but putting somebody on the spot. And all those other motives. Ask the questions that have important purposes. And as I said earlier, most of us in our our Christian lives have been asked often questions like Jesus was asked, right? We've, We've been asked challenging questions. We've been asked questions that we know people really, they don't want to know the answer. It's, it's more to put us on the spot. It's more to mock us for our beliefs. They create these um, uh, weird, ridiculous questions that really, you know, there's no answer to it. They don't want an answer. They just want to put us on the spot. Um, and yet, <laughs> Peter, in one of his letters, said, be prepared to give an answer. When people ask about your hope, be prepared. But do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Do it with wisdom and wit. Like Jesus. Jesus had wisdom and wit when those questions were tossed out at him. Would you like some? You can have wisdom and wit from Jesus. Let's close by looking at that promise in James 1. James chapter 1. James 1, 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, I do. I don't know about you. I'd like more wisdom and wit. And uh, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Who gives generously? To all. Without finding fault. And it will be given to him. You lack wisdom? You need more wisdom and wit to respond to those questions that are bombarding you? Ask God. The promise is He will generously give that wisdom. He's not going to be upset that you come to Him and ask for it. It says He'll give it without finding fault. Jesus, the one with the wisdom and wit, is willing to give us a measure of wisdom and wit. If we just ask. And he will teach us and help us respond to the questions that are asked of us. And it will prepare us to give an answer. An appropriate answer. A wise answer. And yes, sometimes even a witty answer. Let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for this look at Jesus. Another truth about him that is so impressive, so amazing, how he was able to interact with and respond to people. 
even those who, whose motives weren't pure. Father, we need some of that. Because, Father, as you know, we're surrounded by people who ask questions. And a lot of times those questions are proper, Father. They, they're based on somebody wanting to know, really wanting to understand. But, Lord, there are those who just challenge and defy and mock with their questions. And, Father, we just need wisdom. We need wit to know how to answer as Jesus would how to respond, and how, Lord, to to move the conversation to what's really important, the real issues. Help us in that, Lord. You, You said ask, and you would give. We're asking. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, would you stand as we close in one last song, Um, You Are My Vision. And as we spend time with God and keep our eyes on his word and on him and ask him, he will give us that wisdom and wit that we need. You are my vision, O King of my 